This is LifeLinks with a DL link. Well, welcome to it. Um, this is 101.9 High FM. I'm Nikki Seberini and you are listening to the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. Um, the DL Link was formed, wow, 2010 by Michelle Goodman and Jackie Atsula. Um, and what the DL Link does is they provide a nurturing safe space where cancer patients as well as their families can turn to for support. And all the way back in 2010, they were looking after a small uh, amount of families and now in 2018, well over 750 families. And it's always incredible and so heartwarming and to see how our community come together time and time again to support the DL link um, and enable them to support the community in turn. So last week we were talking about the Telcom 947 race. Um, we know that the DL link put an incredible team together with amazing kits and the names of cancer warriors. Um, and uh, we know that Liberty Life came on board as well with sponsorship and, and just so many people with fundraising. And once again, humbled, the, the community humbles us um, really with their, their bottomless um, uh, uh, generosity and giving and warmth. So I am so delighted to welcome one of the cyclists um, on the show today who's going to tell us firsthand what it was like cycling through the streets of Joburg in what was called a heat wave. I mean, 30 degrees. I just wanted to be in the swimming pool drinking lots and lots of water, and I couldn't imagine myself on a hot tar road. But when you're trained and when you're doing it for a purpose, I suppose it gives you that extra push. So uh, Lenny Glasser is in the studio. He was in the race on Sunday. Lenny, for someone who was on the road... Hours and hours in the heat. You look fantabulous. Welcome. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank <laughs> that you. is a compliment. Um, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it was extremely hot on Sunday, I must be honest. I think that the heat was uh, insane. I've done, I think this was my seventh or my eighth 94.7 ride. Um, and I don't believe I've ever experienced anything to this Quite degree. Quite Never. Mm. Uh, it was just out of this world. Mm. And I, I, f- I truly feel sorry for any of the people that started in, in later time slots because I, I truly don't know how they managed to get to the finish line. What time did you start, Lenny? So I started with a charity bond, which was at 8.25. Uh, I did have an earlier seeding time because of previous races, but I decided to ride with the DL Link group. There were a couple of guys that were riding for the first time, so I decided that I would... Uh, try ride with them and see, you know, pull them through for as much as I could until either they couldn't keep up or I needed to go on, So, which is pretty much what happened. Wow. So so why the DL link? Um, so to be honest, in, in previous years, I've generally always cycled under the Hatsola banner. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason this year, there wasn't uh, a, a Hatsola ride, um, although normally their, their primary fundraiser is actually the, the Cape Argus, the Cape mm-hmm. Cycle Tour. Um, and 94.7 has never really been a big thing for, for Hatsola in terms of a fundraiser. Um, and once the route got uh, changed in terms of they reversed the route this year for the first time, and a friend of mine sent me a, a, a link to say, would I sponsor him? And I basically replied to him and said, well, I'll do one better. I'll also ride, um, you know, if there's still places available. And that was pretty much how I came to the deal link. And I must say it was unbelievable. I think that the... The organization between the DL Link and Liberty, uh, as I said, this was my seventh or eighth 
uh, 94.7. The hospitality Ted was unbelievable. It was just, uh, it was amazing from beginning to really? end. I must say they really looked after the cyclists from the time we got into the, you know, the tent at the finish line. Uh, nothing was too much from drinks to food to whatever, you know, it was all laid on. It was hmm. an, uh, unbelievable, I must say. Amazing. And so who, who did you ride? In whose name did you so ride? So I, I rode uh, for the late Chil Powen. Mm-hmm. Um, her son uh, is a good mate of mine who now lives in Cape Town. Um, and I didn't really know much about the DL Link in terms of how it worked, but once, you know, they told us that we could ride for someone, uh, you know, it made sense for me. So, okay. it made sense to me that I should uh, ride uh, w- with her name on my on my vest, basically. So I contacted John T. and and yeah, basically asked him if he'd uh, if if he'd do me the honour of letting me ride with his mother's name. Wow, he must have been so humbled by that. That must have been incredible. I hope so. <laughs> sure. I hope so. So, if you've ridden in the past um, for Hatsola and for racing funds for Hatsola um, and Hatsola I mean again so incredible within the community and again the community supporting them um, the deal link wow to be connected with people people who are fighting cancer cancer warriors and those who have passed um, in terms of that Lenny how was it different I mean did you it's not the weight of someone on your shoulders did you feel the energy within the team of of riding for yeah, for people who are fighting a, a huge battle. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the what, what Hatsolo does is very much uh, an everyday, day-to-day function in terms of, of what it offers to the community. Um, whereas I think that from the DL Link's point of view and what they're, they're doing to alleviate the, the difficulties that families are experiencing, you know, whether it's parents or children or whatever it is, you know, of cancer patients or survivors, I think that that is an amazing piece of work that the guys are doing. Mm. And I certainly think that while I was sitting there in the heat, there, there were definitely moments where, you know, you, you just couldn't help but think like she was like, this is easy. Uh, and, you know, right. thank God I'm, I'm, I'm a healthy person and, and, you know, relatively, you know, look after myself well, etc. cetera. Um, but let me tell you, there were times out there in that heat where you think like, you know, if this is suffering, like, who knows what other people are actually going mm-hmm. through. So I think definitely there was that moments where you could certainly, to a degree, you know, um, just kind of put yourself into that place and, 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 and almost uh, get a sense of what it must be like to, to, and, and to given go that through that, that push. Path. That and, push. Hey, right. There was a lot push. of pushing going on, right. let me tell you. That was, uh, without a doubt, as I say, I mean, I'm quite athletic and I am quite fit. So, the, you know, the race itself wasn't that much of a challenge in terms of the distance. I think the heats uh, made it extremely challenging. And then the fact that there were guys that were doing it for the first time and trying to, you know, motivate them and coach them or, or, or at least push them through to, to achieving it. Uh, one guy in particular who also rode uh, as with the DL Link, if I'm not mistaken, he was interviewed last week, Daniel Singer. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it was his first race. And I think he was pretty nervous uh, as to whether he would finish or not. And uh, we'd made a, a deal that I would, you know, ride with him at least until the halfway point, and then either, you know, he would stay with me or or we would we would see each other at the finish, which is what happened in the end. Um, you know, I, I left him at the halfway mark, and and he carried on, but he finished, and he, oh, he had a great la- oh, great race. I think um, for me, probably one of the highlights of the race um, was as I was coming up. Um, Past the zoo, going up Jan Smuts Avenue, uh-huh. uh, it, it's a, it was a crazy climb into town. I think that's the highest part of the actual race, 
and I was cycling and I saw a, a, a person riding on a recumbent. So they obviously are a, were, are a paraplegic mm-hmm. of sorts. Um, and someone was pushing them from the back. And, and I knew how I felt when I saw that the, the person firstly on the recumbent cycling with his shoulders. I knew what my legs felt sure. like at that point. And I saw the person pushing him, and I, I actually rode past, stopped, came back, and actually helped them Did you? Uh, to push for a bit, <laughs> um, just because I, I, I don't know what possessed me to do it. I still doesn't really make sense why I did it um, in the heat, and you know, at the end of the day, I, my goal was to finish the race. But when I saw what that person was going through and the person pushing them. I just had to, you know, kind of lend a hand. It actually happened that one of the other DL Link cyclists, which I wasn't aware of, saw it and took out their phone and actually took a photo took a of it, mm-hmm. um, which was sent to me after the race, which she I must say was quite cool. Not what that I did story. it for the photo op, but no, uh, of course not. It, it was very cool. And then it I became a highlight. Absolutely. And, and I love that you say you don't know why you didn't, why you did it. And I would say, why wouldn't you do it? You know, because in life we, we're busy, we're doing, we, Absolutely. you know, the goal is finished, that this is, but life's not like that. So life says, here's a little twist and a turn and a challenge Absolutely. and a bump. We need so to why rise wouldn't to our you? And, and it became a highlight for you. Very which much I love. so, I must say. Wow. It was very cool. Uh, mm. I, it was, it was definitely a, 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 something that I, I don't know if I'll forget it for a long time. And I actually showed the picture to one of my kids when I got home. Just to say, you know, that, you know, sometimes you just got to push past your, your boundaries and, and hmm. push past your what you believe are your limitations. What a lesson! Um, and I think that that was just a, a great lesson for me. Oh, fantastic! Uh, and and uh, hopefully for anyone that that gets to see the picture, or, you know, that we can achieve amazing things. We just need to believe in ourselves. I'd love to see that picture. Maybe we'll put it on the DL Link page. Uh, they've got a copy of it. Michelle it? has a copy of okay, it. Yeah, I hope so. Hope so, so you could ask her for it. Put it, it, I'm it sure out she, there. Put it out she there. She can put it um, out there. Lenny, just one more question before you go, and that is. Just the overall feeling of this 947, this Telcom 947 challenge. Um, it's, it's a Joburg race. It's summer. It is always hot, not as hot as it was on Sunday. Absolutely. I mean, that was the, the hottest it's been. But just the, the general camaraderie, you know, we talk about we're living through difficult times and it's challenging and, oh, but to be there. There's always a great vibe. Um, you know, I, um, I always like to banter and, and, and chirp guys on, a, on, on any race or anything that I'm taking part in. I just always think that it, it, it always helps to alleviate things at times. And I, I must fa- say that I always find that the camaraderie and the, the, the closeness of, the, of riders, complete strangers that you've mm. never met before, but there's mm. always a, a strong sense of togetherness and, and a great vibe around the race, literally from beginning to end. Mm. Um, and, I, and it was, just, again, amazing just to see how people, you know, stop to help – People that are, are, are struggling or whatever it might be, change a tire. It's just there is very much that, and I think it's a great opportunity as Joburgers to you know we 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 come together once a year. Uh, if only it could happen more often, mm. you know that we we could uh, have this positivity mm. which we do get to feel, it's you know, there, but they're in isolated there. pockets rather than sure. all the time. But it uh. was it was yeah, it's a great experience. And uh, I have no doubt I'll be back again next I'm year. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. But Joburgers are liquor. I say Joburgers are really liquor. I have to agree. Hey, I, I love, agree. I love Joburgers. Lenny, thank you so much. Um, thanks for taking part in the race and thanks for sharing the story with us. My pleasure. Loved thank having you, you on very the show. Much. Thank you so much. Lenny Glasser on 101.9 High FM. A quick break and then, wow, more inspiration coming your way. This is Life Links with a DL Link. 
Well, welcome back. Um, this is 101.9 Chai FM. You're listening to the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. And just before the break, I did say we're going to continue with lots and lots of inspiration. Um, and, and the theme moving forward from here, we're going to look at adversity. And I came across an incredible quote by Michelle Obama. Um, and she said, you should never view your challenges as a disadvantage. Instead, it's important important for you to understand that your experience facing and overcoming adversity is actually one of your biggest advantages. And I really, really love that. The problem is when you're going through it, it doesn't always feel like it. But I have Elvin Law um, on the line from Canada. We are so delighted to have him um, on the show today. He's a motivational speaker, a former radio broadcaster. So he knows all about um, radio broadcasting, sitting in a studio and uh, he's a, a Hall of Fame keynote speaker, and he uses his story to challenge and inspire even the most resistant, heard-it-all-before audience as a living, breathing example of the power of attitude. He busts through the self-imposed blockages we all have about who we are and what we can achieve. Elvin, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. From the other side of the planet... <laughs> <laughs> What's it like, that side of the planet? Well, it, uh, you know, we're already into winter here in Calgary, Canada, and uh, it's it's funny because uh, the, the definitely is getting cold and the weather, uh, we've had snow, but we live in a glorious part of the world. We're right next to the beautiful Rocky Mountains, mm. uh, a range in Canada, and I tell you what, it's uh, it's a thrill to be talking to you this morning. Oh, how fantastic. It's actually morning here. Uh, well, well, here we're already in the uh, uh, bit of the afternoon, and it's boiling hot, Joburg, and uh, summer. And I just love that we are able to communicate from different sides of this extraordinary planet on which we live. Isn't that just great, Alvin? Well, it was a delight to hear from you in the first place. You know, the uh, the video that you saw uh, has had over 24 million views on Facebook alone. So it has a reach that is obviously global, and it was a it was a delight to be part of the project. And, and really, uh, also to be talking to you today. What a thrill. Well, it, it was such an inspiring video, Elvin. But for our listeners, let's just talk a little bit about your history, because what a fascinating story you have. You were born... Well, what's interesting... Yeah, share it Sorry, with us, ahead. please, Elvin. Share, share it with us. So that is the question of the, of the day uh, in every day of my life. You can well imagine that when you walk around in the world, uh, metaphorically even, without arms, uh, you get noticed. And uh, people do have a second look. They don't know how to feel on that initial moment of exposure. You know, the idea of the first impression is always fascinating to me because in, in, in culture, we say the first impression is the most important. Well, I, I kind of disagree because when people see me, their first impression uh, is usually quite negative for the obvious reason. But then they see me doing something with my feet, and they get very curious about that. And I'm not the only foot user in the world. But I am a member of a very small group of people that we call thalidomide babies. And thalidomide was a morning sickness medication that was given to pregnant women, uh, even in Australia, uh, as close to where you are. But I'm not sure that it ever made it to South Africa. It, it did. was mostly in the northern continent. It was Europe, uh, England, uh, Germany, and Canada. And it was banned in 1962 for using with pregnant women. But the drug itself didn't allow my arms to grow before I was even born. So I have been like this 
ever since I took my first breath on planet Earth. And and of course, um, you were then a, a, you were given up for adoption as well to top all of that off. Yeah, we we often joke in my profession that uh, I've got a motivational speech already built into my life <laughs> because my birth family, and this was not uncommon in the sense of the of the initial reaction uh, that mothers in particular had of their babies who were born. And it wasn't just arms. There were so many different sorts of configurations, if I can use that crude word, of the bodies. So it could have been a missing hand. It could have been missing all four limbs. But what I've often commented on is I may have been the one born this way, but I think the mothers, the the, the dads, the, the siblings, the extended family, even just the community itself, were the ones that, that kind of had to deal with the reality of this. And bluntly, my birth family just couldn't cope. So when I was five days old, uh, not to be stark, but I also became homeless because I had nowhere to go. When my birth family left, they were uh, courteous enough to put me, uh, you know, legally into the system in Canada, which I don't know if you have in South Africa a, a similar kind of thing, but into a foster home. Mm-hmm. And the foster home is where I met the Law family. Of course, my last name is Law. Uh, they're the ones in particular, my mom, Hilda, that had a profound impact on the person that I became today. Well, he, your, your mom was incredible because she, she didn't see you as anything other than perfect and, and right. And that's, and that's how she yeah, brought you it, up. A- absolutely. And I can add, add one more thing to it. They already had two sons that were born, <laughs> this is a long time ago, in the 1930s. Uh, you know, I was born in 1960. So my parents were actually in their middle 50s when they took me in, but they did not plan to keep me. This was a job that, that uh, in particular, Hilda did. She, she didn't get paid well, <laughs> but she, she got paid to, to foster kids in their home. Uh, regular kids, though, not ones that were handicapped or disabled. And the thing that happened, though, was when I came to live with them, uh, I got first I stayed for two weeks, then five weeks, then ten weeks, and the number kept extending. And at that point, that's when, when Hilda decided, you know what, this little boy needs to stay in this home because not only can we teach him, but he's kind of, as, as she put it, growing on us. So I never left. I, I, I ended up being a, a permanent foster child. I was never actually legally adopted because of their age and rules in Canada at the time. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, I became a law. And here's the point, is my mom in particular raised me just like my brothers. It was very difficult, if you can imagine, to try to get your head around how to take care of a baby without arms. Mm. But there was something magical about that woman that just managed to see above what I didn't have, but more than anything, to treat me just like a regular baby. Hmm. And, and, and so much so that you, you went to regular schools and you, you were integrated in a normal way. I mean, in the 60s, you probably would have been put into a special school. But here, Hilda saw, you know, as I said, she saw you as a normal baby and put you in, in a normal school. And, and, and that made all the difference. Yeah, and you know, it, it is really kind of interesting to me, and I hope your audience will find it the same, uh, there were so many stages of my development that were way ahead of their time. Mm. Uh, if I can, you know, speak to this just for one second, I think, you know, listeners now that maybe in their younger days, maybe they're in their 20s or 30s, uh, you know, they, they hear this and they go, you, you had to go to a, a special school in those days? Absolutely. And it was very common. It wasn't even questioned because this was a long time ago. We, we've obviously learned some things in our society about, you know, how people are and how they function. 
But the great irony of this story was there was actually a primary school right across the street from my house. So, you know, it almost glared across the road saying, you know, I need to go to that school. It's right there. But this is a very key part of the story, and this is not to disparage the special needs school. But in the regular school that I went to, I learned to live in a regular world. In those days, I think the people that went to what they didn't even call them special needs schools, they called them the schools for the crippled, you know, way back when. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't that they were terrible people that ran these schools, but the expectation level and the challenge level was really not the same as going into the regular educational system. But these things had never been done before, especially in our little town in, in Canada. So my mom and dad, especially, I think, uh, were not trying to be groundbreakers, but they were doing it unintentionally because there was just no precedent for this kind of story in our little community. Now we know because of the Internet in particular, and thank God for that, that there's all kinds of people like this, but not in 1960 in our little town. Mm. Uh, and, but, but Elvin, when you, when you did finally cross the road and go to the school um, and at home with, with no arms, with your mom and dad and brothers, you, you, that was normal. But as soon as you went to school, you're going to have a whole lot of kids who are going to look at you as if there's something wrong. Um, was that the first time you realized really that you were different in terms of not having arms or did that never really happen at all? Great question. You know, it, it's going to sound like uh, I make these answers up, you know, for an interview, for my speech. The reality is that my mindset was uh, one of such a normal child and not in a politically correct way, if I can add that. This was about function. I could use my feet just as well as hands. I could take care of, of myself, uh, you know, in, in, in most of, of the functions that I did. There was a little tricky part in getting dressed, in, in using the, the, the lavatory or the washroom. That was tricky. At first, I had to figure out my own methodology. Clothing had to be, you know, uh, redone or, or, or invented so that I could wear it myself. But it was not about the physical element. It was more the whole, if I can use the word, cultural idea at the time mm -hmm. would maybe have surprised uh, others, in, you know, people, in, especially in your audience listening, uh, and others that had did, did not know me, the strangers that might wander into town. But our, our town was only about maybe 7,000 people. Mm. So I was exactly the opposite. I was very well known. And, and everybody in the community, because my mom in particular was very outgoing, they got to know little Alvin. So the idea that, that when I went to school, you know, people might be thinking, oh, the kids were terrible to me. You know, they laughed at me. They made fun of me. Um, you know, it, if they did, I don't remember it. It, mm. it was, if it was, you know, it was probably subtle or, or typical, you know, five or six or seven year old behavior. But to everybody in my school, I was just Alvin. And I think the most important element was not just that I could function with my feet, but that I learned in the educational system how to be the person that I am in 2018. Right. Uh, and of course, you fell in love with music, didn't you? You discovered this incredible talent that you had while you were at school. Yeah, that's the one that catches people a little bit by surprise when they <laughs> see it, especially, you know, with the Internet the way that it is. There's all kinds of videos available of me playing my music. But what I often tell is not to be, you know, sort of, of um, uh, dramatic in the, in the telling of the story. I was like every little kid, in my case a little boy, who wanted to be in something. I tried sports. You know, I tried everything. But if, if you put your, your mind around this, that even a simple sport – 
that we would call in North America soccer or properly put football. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd think I could play that. I could kick the ball. I didn't have to worry about getting the penalty of touching the ball with my hands. Ha, ha, ha. We just didn't play that sport in Canada in uh, those days. And mm-hmm. all the other sports, you know, the ones that would use hands, uh, that created a real problem for me in one sense. But in another sense, I realized, well, that's okay. I just won't be able to do that. But I loved music. I always loved it from the time that I can remember, humming, singing, you know, to the radio, etc. But what was really fascinating was the first instrument that I actually tried to play uh, was the piano, because that's the entrance for music for so many children. And isn't it when they're little, they take piano lessons. Well, my mom asked a lady in town, a very nice lady, if, if I could get lessons. And we tried it. But then the lady realized, you know, your toes are so short, mm. you'll never really be able to play music. And uh, and we just put that aside. Again, it sounds terrible, but I understood this as part of my life. I won't always get to do the things that I want to do. But the difference in this case of this story was a remarkable music director uh, for the schools in Yorkton, who, by the way, had not met me when this happened, but came up with this genius idea of mounting a trombone that's the instrument with the long slide that goes in and out, right? On the side of a chair with metal rods and clamps that I played, if you can visualize this, with my right foot. So I was actually able to play the trombone in school band. But more importantly, that elevated everything in my mind, that if I can do this and I can play, why don't I play really well? And not only will that get uh, me where I want to go, but it may be able to also educate others in the process that there's no handicap here. Alvin, I'm sure that there are so many people trying to visualize uh, a young student with no arms playing the trombone. You know, we can complain about, is it the right instrument? Am I tall enough? Am I slim enough? Are my fingers long enough? Is my hair straight enough? And we're so concerned about all these tiny little details which can get in the way of us achieving so many things and here you are with no arms playing a musical instrument and and I really really encourage people to go online and to go onto YouTube and to just put in your name and to watch you play a musical instrument because it is incredibly incredibly inspiring um, but of course you really um, um, took to playing the drums didn't you? Well, and that's, you know, and and when I think back to this story, and I hope you can appreciate, you and your audience, that when I say this, I'm not trying to create a a narrative from the outside looking in to me, correct? I knew from my my eyesight looking out that there was a lot going on in my heart and in my soul. And I love what you just said in that, in that, that paragraph of words that talked about how so many people, and this is not to be disrespectful, uh, they just don't have confidence in themselves. For whatever reason, I'm not judging them. I had great confidence in myself mm. because I learned to get over the obstacles of having no arms even before I was six or seven years old. So really in my mind, what could stop me from being who I want to be? But here's the funny part of the story. The trombone, and I'll use this word, wasn't very cool. Mm. You know, it was a trombone. I wanted <laughs> to play something cool. So when you have exposure to musical instruments, as we did in band, you know, there's a drum set sitting yeah, there. So cool. one day I decided I'm going to grab a pair of drumsticks and just <laughs> try playing these things. Well, as it turned out, I'd already done that. I had forgotten that when I was a little tiny boy, about three years old, typical of kids, right? I used to love banging on pots and pans in our kitchen with wooden spoons between my toes. Hmm. So you see, the mindset was 
this is Alvin. This is how I do things. Right. The problem I had, and this is why I talk about this as a speaker, is society at the time had never seen anything like this before. But when I think back to that example of the trombone, it got me into music. But here's the key to why that story is important. It put me in a group of people that respected me for what I did. I often have a line that says musicians, and I think musicians will agree with this, musicians don't care what you look like. You know, can you play? Mm. Well, the answer to that is yes, I can. Mm. And I think that's why it's so inspirational. I understand that. But, but to me, I'm just a musician. And the drums are really my favorite instrument to play. I really don't play the trombone anymore. I still have it. But it's the drums that I try to play every day. They sit in my basement. I use them in my speeches. And as you said, they're, they're, they provide a great video for people to watch, uh, you know, just to get a sense. And, and by the way, this is not boasting about what I do. This is about a real-life story that I've decided to take public to not only educate people that are listening on your, on your show today, but through the media that we have available now, the Internet, all those YouTubes you're talking about, to try to inspire others that may face not challenge of having no arms, but anything that gets in the way of their happiness and joy in life. And I know that sounds perfect, but I really do have happiness and joy in my life every day. We can hear it. I mean, it's, we, it's in your voice. It's, it's there. It's evident. We can, we can all hear it. And I started off with a quote, Michelle Obama's quote, something about um, she said you should never view your challenges as a, as a disadvantage. And then she says it's actually one of your biggest advantages. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it sounds, again, I think some people would probably be put out by what, what she said. And, and, you know, that's a great example of, of a woman, uh, of, a, of a first lady, uh, but more than anything, of a human being that really didn't fall into the normal label of being a politician's wife. She was an, and is an extraordinary woman. And I'm not trying to cast any negative light on any of the other first ladies of America. But, you know, we live in Canada, which is right next door to the United States. So we see so much information, especially when her husband was, was president. But what I admire about that is she's coming from a very honest place. You know, she's black-skinned, uh, African-American, I guess, in her mind. And I say that because I'm not a real fan of any label. But I say I agree with her completely. In fact, that's the trouble is sometimes we say these things and it almost sounds not even dismissive. That's the wrong word. But, you know, oh, just get over it. Just get over it. Well, that's hard for some people. But in retrospect, when I look at it, because people look at me and go, God, it must have been difficult. I just don't remember it that way. I remember this is my life. I have a disadvantage, to use that word, to society. But I'm going to turn that into an advantage not because I'm going to use any kind of special card, you know, uh, uh, playing this card. We, we like to use that colloquial, you know, a race card or, in my case, a handicap card. No, I wanted to be as good at what I did as everybody else who might have used their hands. So when I was in band, I wanted to be the best. And I think it surprised people, but I had a drive. I think that's where a lot of people from disadvantage need to be reminded is you're already experiencing very difficult challenges in your life. If you can get over the basic ones, nothing in your future can hold you back. Amazing. And that's what I learned growing up. And here I am at 58 years old living that exact truth. 
You are incredible, Alvin. You have inspired us all. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story. We are going to be going on to YouTube. We're going to be Googling you. We'll go to Mr. and Mrs. Google, um, and uh, we're going to be reading up more and following your star. You're amazing. Thanks for inspiring us. Really, you are incredible. Thank you, Alvin. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. And, uh, and by the way, it's just alvinlaw.com. It's as simple as that. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Alvin. Take care. Hope to have you on the show again. Thanks. Nice talking to you. Have a great day. Thank you, Alvin. Bye-bye. Alvin Law, motivational speaker and former radio broadcaster. Go online. Go check him out. Watch the videos. This is an incredibly inspiring human being, and he goes out and he inspires others. And we're just going to keep elevating the guests on the studio um, today. In just a moment after the break, I'm going to have John Demartini. Um, He's going to be also talking about adversity and we're going to be looking at Elvin's story and how it is that one person can live such an extraordinarily happy, successful life um, with that kind of disadvantage. Is it just because he was born that way? I don't know. Stay with us. This is LifeLinks with a DL link. Welcome back. You are tuned to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Nikki Seberini. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. In fact, there's so much illumination happening in the studio on the, at the moment, and we are continuing with our extraordinary guests. Dr. John Demartini is in the studio. He's a human behavioral specialist. He's an educator, internationally published author, um, and a business consultant, and he's in South Africa. He dips in every now and then. Every now and then we have the opportunity to grab him and pull him in the studio, um, really, but a mission, traveling the world and changing people's lives. Kind of like switching a light on inside that maybe wasn't on before and just get people to see how extraordinary they all are. So, John, welcome. Thank you for Once having again, me. Once again, lovely, yes. lovely having you on the show yes, as always. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you were in the, in the studio listening to Elvin's story. Inspiring, wasn't it? Really was inspiring, and I, I think that the I want to pick your brain because you are the human behavioralist, the specialist, and I, and I want to let's look at the, the nature and the nurture in terms of this. A, a baby born to a mother um, with no arms, the, the the parents giving up this baby because of the the struggle that 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 the, the baby would go through, and you know the parents deciding they didn't want that, moving into a foster home. I mean, this is kind of the the, the soil. For uh, it's a very fertile soil for a person who grows up with um, problems, with issues, the poor me, the victim, life is not good, etc., etc., etc. We can see a whole host of problems down the line, but not with Alvin. Not <laughs> with Alvin, an extraordinary mother and father who took him on, who saw him as a normal child. What is that all about? Well, I'm sure there's many variables that I'm not aware of, but um, of we can be a victim of our history. Or we can be a master of our destiny, mm-hmm. and it's a choice. A victim of our history or a master of our destiny, the and, choice. And right. we have, you know, there's three things we have control over in our life, our perceptions, our decisions, and our actions. And if you make a decision to take whatever happens to you and use it to your greatest advantage, extraordinary things can come from these extraordinary beginnings. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that William James had said it's the greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. Now, you know, he obviously had the opportunity in his perception to see this as an opportunity to do something amazing with his life. And I'm sure along the way, 
when he would get acknowledgement for the accomplishments. That would probably catalyze further to, well, this is working. I, I, I'm making a difference. I'm feeling I'm inspired, and I'm sure that's catalyzed it. But the idea of taking it, I always said, said for years that the more down and out you've been, the more up and in you have the potential to be. Mm-hmm. And he's done a, a perfect example of what's possible, mm-hmm. and that's an inspiration. When you look at what inspires people, one of the things that's most common is people that did extraordinary things overcoming extraordinary op- right. obstacles. Right. And he's a good example of that. So that's why I, I was looking forward to catching up with him when I'm in Calgary next. Oh, I hope you both do get together. I'd yeah, love definitely. to hear more about it. Um, you know, I was once reading uh, an article on resilience. Like, what is it that makes children resilient? What is that? Um, and, and they said that through a whole lot of research, it's having a, a, a stable, solid Parent, and it doesn't have to be a parent, older figure, um, this person in your life that is there, the stable force in your life, it helps children with resilience. Um, so the fact that he was given up for adoption, but that he had this mother um, who she just didn't see him as anything else and that he came from a small community as well. So he wasn't just a stranger. He became a person within that community. Well, there's a thing in the educational industry called the Pygmalion effect. Right. And if somebody sees somebody uh, with potential, it can make a difference in life. I was told I would never be able to read, never write, never communicate, never amount to anything, never go very far in life when I was a child, when I was in first grade. My parents had to come to the school. The teacher had to say that and said, look, he's, he's not going to do it in school. And he's going to – maybe you can put him in sports. So I left school. I was 13 years old. I left school. 14 years old, I, I left home. I disappeared. And I was a street kid for many years. And it wasn't until I was 17 that I met a gentleman named Paul Bragg who believed that I had a genius hidden inside me. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to read. But one night, one man in one hour believed that I had a genius inside. And he was so certain. His certainty was greater than my doubt. Hmm. And that did make a difference. So the idea of having somebody, it may not be a parent. It may be a coach. It may be a policeman. It could be anybody who sees something that you don't see in yourself and says it with such conviction and certainty. Whoever has the most certainty rules. And so somebody with more certainty about your potential sometimes can impact somebody that has been told they can't or believe they can't. So once they find out what they really love doing and they start pursuing it and they build that momentum, amazing things can occur. You know, there's a story about a young girl who was born without legs. Right. So it's it's the reverse of, of Alvin. Mm-hmm. And um, they, she was given up also by the parents and given into a foster. The foster parents said, it's a very similar story, that said that, no, you have to be treated just like everybody else here. And it was the challenges that make greatness, not the over-support, not the over-protection. Stability is not necessarily over-protection mm-hmm. and over-support. It's mm-hmm. the challenge, too. The challenge to be great and not to be so, well, you're not, I'm not going to rescue you. You're going to be And we're not going to treat you like you know, you're going to be great. Right. You're, you're a human being with right. great powers. right. Well, this girl found that she had a love for trampolines, and she would just bounce on trampolines even though she had no legs. Wow. And she ended up doing gymnastics eventually and trampolines and became one of the leaders in the area and then won awards. And then one day, when she turned about 15, 16, she turned to her mom and she says, where do I really come from? Who's my real parent? And her mom had to sit her down and say, your real parent is this person. So she went to contact that, and she found out that her real parent was the parents of one of the greatest gymnasts in the world. Gee whiz. Gee whiz. 
and they found out that they looked alike and they were almost identical and they're both gymnasts. And they, there's a video of them meeting and finding out that she had a, a she was doing gymnastics just like her sister, even though they're opposite sides of the world. So there was somehow there was a genetic component, but there was a there was a magnificence. And when they finally met, and they realized that they did it. The very person that had been she'd been watching to learn gymnastics was her sister without even knowing it. Just incredible. And the sister, when she found out that this was her sister, was brought to tears of inspiration. So they both inspired each other. So it doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. What matters is what you decide to do with it and what how you perceive it and the decisions you make and how you persevere towards something that is truly inspiring to you. If you do that, there's nothing on this planet. I always say there's no mortal that can interfere with an, interfere with an immortal visionary. And somebody that has something that they want to do on this planet, no matter what their obstacles, if their obstacle is insignificant compared to the vision – the vision transcends the obstacle, and they do something amazing. So you have the, and Alvin's a magnificent vision. example of, mm-hmm. of somebody that didn't let anything stop him, mm-hmm. and he went on to do something amazing with his life and now change, transforming millions of people's lives. So, John, but, but what about those who say you, you're either born with it or you're not? So you can have the adversity. You can be born with the handicaps. Um, and we'll go back to your story as well because I'll be so interested to know how you were brought up in terms of how you saw yourself before you were actually told that you weren't good enough um, and that you, you wouldn't be able to read and write and do whatever. But but some people will say that you're born with it. So w- with the struggles, you still have it within you to overcome it. And you have those who simply don't have it. What do you say to that? Well, I don't know if I can totally agree with that because I, I think I've seen so many thousands of people as I've gotten to travel the world who have been running a story and running their victim story uh-huh. for so long that in the program, when I do the Breakthrough Experience, for instance, which is a program I do, I watch them change it. And I've seen them, their, the trajectory of their life changes just like mine did when I met this gentleman, Paul Bragg. Their life changes. So I don't, just because I've been doing it for 30, 40 years, I've seen people play the victim for years. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, just like you said in the beginning. And I've seen them change, and their lives change mastic- massively. So when I was when I was born, I had a deformed arm and leg. I had my foot and arm turned in. And when I was, I think, about one and a half, I had to go to speech pathologist because mm-hmm. I couldn't pronounce and I couldn't spell. And I couldn't. Well, there was no spelling, but I couldn't move my mouth right. right. So I had to put buttons and strings in my mouth and all these exercises and stuff. And I had to wear braces on my arm and leg. And I just wanted to be free and... And I, I didn't like being ridiculed by the kids so much. And I think the desire to want to be free from the braces is what makes me travel the world today. And the idea that mm. I couldn't speak makes me probably want to speak mm. today. Mm. And the idea that I couldn't spell until I was – I didn't really read until I was 18 made me want to go and read you know, 30,200 books now. <laughs> so so I, I think that the, 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 the things that they tell you you'll never be able to do may be the very things you're destined to do. Mm. And also, I mean, at such a young age, when you're having to do all of that, you're exercising a part of your brain. Um, do you know what I'm saying? There's the whole rewiring happening there that it, it, it stands you in very good stead for later on. One thing I'm certain about, I, I, I tell people that there's at the level of the essence of your soul, there's nothing missing in you. The essence of your soul, but the level the, of at the, the At the level of the existence of your senses, things appear to be missing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we think we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside ourselves. But when we realize that if we see something we admire in somebody that we think, wow, that's amazing, it's only because we have it, but we're too, too humble to admit it. And when we realize that they inspire us, it's because we have that same capacity to be inspiring to others inside us. And I, once I realize that nothing's missing, 
then I realize that I just have it in a form that I haven't been honoring it. Right. And when you realize that you have the same capacities to do it, but you just haven't honored it, and you then start to target it on the things that's truly meaningful to you that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do, then you build momentum and amazing things start to emerge. And is that how you change your story? That's how you change your story. And then once people do it, a lot of people, they're, they're conforming and subordinating and trying to fit in instead of stand out. And as Einstein had said, you know, if you're a cat and you're comparing yourself to a fish, you're going to think you're a terrible swimmer. Mm -hmm. And if you're a fish and you're comparing yourself to a cat, you're going to think you're a terrible climber. And you're going to beat yourself up because you're expecting yourself to be somebody you're not. But the authenticity and integrity of being who you are is what emerges the greatness and the leader that we all have inside. So we just got to give ourselves permission to be ourselves and give ourselves permission to do something extraordinary on the planet. And amazing things can happen if we start taking action steps. And little baby steps make big dreams. Mm. And piggy banks become biggie banks. Mm. It's the little bitty things that you do every day. I remember one time I had to practice drawing a circle. And my, and my grandfather said, I want you to draw the circle until you are satisfied that that circle is as perfect as you can make it. And I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many you have to do. Do it. And then when you come to me and you feel that that's a perfect circle and you did it freestyle, I'm going to give you your next challenge. And he would give me a square, <laughs> and I couldn't use a straight edge. And he was trying to train me that it's incremental things until of achievement. And that was a really great thing to have from a grandpa. And a great thing because once you've achieved it, so you realize it's a journey, small step, small step. Small steps. And when you've achieved something, then possibility opens. You, well, you, the second you – see, everybody has a set of priorities in life, a set of values in life. And whenever they're pursuing what's truly valuable to them, the highest priority value to their life – they are spontaneously inspired to pursue it, and they just don't want to give up on it. And in that process, they actually, when they do accomplish something, they actually pursue greater challenges spontaneously. And a real leader is somebody who pursues challenges that inspire them and wants to tackle them. And when they do, they expand their space and time horizons and give themselves permission to do something even greater. So greatness is capable in all of us, but we just have to be able to be starting in the area that is inspiring to us. And we, and we have to not run the story by comparing ourselves to others, only compare our daily actions to our own dreams. Mm. So let's look at the inspiration and where that inspiration comes from. Um, you spoke about conforming. You know, we think we need to be like everyone else because didn't we always have to in order to survive, to be a part of a tribe so we didn't stand out? We didn't want to stand out. We wanted to be a part of the tribe so we could all hunt together, eat together, do everything together. Um, standing out would be kicked out and then who knows what could happen. But today we want to stand out. And we want to find our passion. We want to find what makes us excited. And how do we how do we translate that? And how do we allow our children and um, teenagers who are finding their way in the world in their twenties? How do we allow them that space? Well, it's interesting. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, "Envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide." And we all want to make a difference. I was at even Krugerstorp Prison. And I had a thousand inmates in orange uniforms there. Yes. And I was speaking and standing on a little stool mm -hmm. and um, had six guards around me. And the warden was there. And I, I, I looked around and I was surrounded by orange uniforms. And I said, how many in here, how many of you have a desire to make a difference in the world? Every hand went up instantaneously. No matter what they've been through, they had a desire to make a difference. There's a natural yearning to be authentic and be ourselves. And there's no one exactly like us. Our hierarchy of values are unique like fingerprints. And the second we live congruently with them, we stand out and we are unique. And the second we try to fit in and try to subordinate and try to live in the shadows of others instead of the shoulders of giants and own what we see in them inside us, we automatically dilute our, our uniqueness and start to fit in. And we can't make a difference being like everybody else. We only make a difference by being ourselves. 
And so the yearning to want to make a contribution, to be, as Steve Jobs said, the misfits, right, and the, the round pegs and the square holes, mm. it's the people that are willing to go and walk the path and be an unborrowed visionary and blaze a new trail of the people that leave them, their mark in the world. And I think Alvin's a classical example. Classic example. Classical example. Absolutely. Let's take a break, John, and we'll be right back. This is LifeLinks with a DL link. Thank you so much for staying with us. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. I have Dr. John DeMartini in the studio. On Tuesday night, I was lucky enough to go along to the Santon Convention Center um, and listen to John talk about challenging us, uh, challenges that we face, being knocked down. Um, and we know about that, not only living in South Africa, but living in the world today. We have this idea that life is tough um, and especially on the DL Link Show where we have have cancer warriors who come on and they talk about the challenge. They talk about the diagnosis, how life changes, and what do you do with that. So, John, let, let's talk about these these challenges that we face in life and how we have the resilience and the ability to rise above. Well, we have – if we look at uh, stress, it's the inability to adapt to a changing environment. Mm-hmm. And there's two types of stress. There's eustress and distress. When we're pursuing something that's really, truly meaningful to us, truly inspiring to us, that we spontaneously can't wait to get up in the morning and do, we will embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. Mm. We will endure challenge. We don't let that stop us. And we are extremely resilient and adaptable to whatever we're facing because we have such a why to go and fulfill what we want to do that we let nothing be in the way. It's on the way. But when we're not doing something meaningful – and not doing something that's highest on our values. And we're trying to live in the subordination of other people. Because people are constantly bombarding them with what you think they, they think you should do. Right. And distracting you. And if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it fills up with low-priority distractions that don't. That are usually infiltrations and projections and injections of other people about what you should do. And living with imperatives of shoulds and ought tos and supposed tos and got tos and have tos and musts and living by lower values and, un- and feeling unfulfilled and uninspired makes us go into our amygdala instead of our executive center. And there we want to just want a quick fix. We want immediate gratification. We want a pleasure without a pain. We want to ease without a difficulty. We want everything, you know, supportive without challenge. And we actually attract challenges that's now called distress. Because we're looking for a one-sided world. In Buddhism, they used to say that, that if the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. Mm. And we don't have resilience there because we have a rigid idea that we want a one-sided world that supports us. And we become victim of history instead of master of destiny. So people who have, if we have to talk specifically about a, a, a diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis, it becomes the priority it, it becomes this, everything else falls by the wayside and this is becomes the challenge that you're going to overcome. Um, uh, so all of a sudden, the relationships that you have become more important. This moment becomes a lot more important. So the distractions aren't there. I mean, can you talk to that? Yes, absolutely. I was the president of the Cancer Prevention Control Association in Houston many years ago. And I worked with many, many cancer patients. And I used to ask him a simple question. So you found out you have cancer. So how has that been a benefit to you? And they how go, is it going to benefit you? Well, how is it a benefit? Uh-huh. Not how is it someday going to how, be. How is, it, how a is it a benefit to you? Oh, wow. Did they and they, look, and at they, you? they uh-huh. look at me at first going, uh, I, they just told me two days ago, uh, they, they go blank. Mm. And I said, there's never a crisis without a blessing. There's never a one-sided magnet. There's two sides. If there's something you think is dark, there's a light. There's a, a shadow. There's a, there's a brilliance. So what's the benefit? 
and they go and I make them look. I make them accountable because if they run their story, they become victims of history and they blame things. And those are not the people that usually make it. Mm. You know, there's the people that search for meaning, as Viktor Frankl says, uh, that make it mm. and not the people that are looking for a quick fix and ease and, and pleasure. So I ask them, what's the benefit? And they go, well, okay. They go, right now, I've never been closer to my family. Great. Let's tick that off. What else? Um, I've stopped and I've given myself permission not to do the job I've never really wanted to do. Great. Take off two. Next one. And these baby, they could vary. Um, I found out that my wife, even though I've, I've loved her and even though I've, I know that, you know, she loves me, we have gotten on a deeper level than we've never, I, I mean, I realize that she's there for me. I said, great. Keep going. What else? I see my kids differently. I now want to spend moments with them and make every moment special. What else? It says, I realize my priorities about the economics that I've had in my life. Hmm. It's changed my economic perspective and what I want to do and what I want to make sure is accomplished. And what else? It says, I started making a list of all the people that have made a difference in my life. And just in case I, something happened to me, I want to make sure I'm ready to make sure I say thank you to those people. And, and, and we just went down the list until they got tears in their eyes. And once they get tears of gratitude in their eyes, their immune system does amazing rallying. And it helps the body, the natural killing cells, and the natural responses of the immune system to actually do their job. So if you are seeing just it in I can way, just feel it. It's a completely different energy. Yeah, it's a completely totally different energy. Totally changes. And, and all of a sudden, many of them all of a sudden awaken up a purpose that they, you know, they've made a decision to want to do something now in the world as a result of this. They want to go out and make a difference and let their story be something inspiring. They make sure that they want to get the real priorities and the bucket list done that they want to get done. And then when they, they realize that their physiology is a feedback your physiology is a feedback to guide you to authenticity. Right. It's a feedback to get you to be the most authentic you you can be. Because uh, we have epigenetic and the effects. box, you're going back to that. Yeah. It, it, we have this epigenetic autonomic response to what goes on in our physiology and our psychology. And it's trying to get us. I always say that cancer is a last-ditch effort to try to get us the most authentic person we can be. Gee whiz. Okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to actually end the show on that. Can you say that again, John? Because you, you, so much wisdom comes out of your mouth. I just want to record you and listen over and over. Well, I just say that, that I've said for many years that, that, that cancer is a last ditch effort of your human physiology and psychology and sociology and theology to get you to be the most authentic you to make the greatest contribution you can make. Amazing. Dr. John DeMartini, thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us again. Thank you. Are you going to be back in South Africa doing any breakthroughs? Uh, yes, I'll be doing that. I'm, I'm coming back. I actually have a f- – I've got to go around the world again, and then I'll come back here in just a few weeks, two weeks, I think. Wonderful. And then I'll uh, be back. I'm, I'll be here at least four or five times a year. Keep I us love up, South Africa. Keep us updated. Thank you. John, lovely having you on the show. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Truly, truly inspiring um, and really looking at adversity in a completely, completely different way. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been a true pleasure. For me, Nikki Seberini, until next week, do take care. Goodbye.